Hello and welcome into another episode of All In with Adam. Today is all about the carnivore diet. And this is an interesting one. This is one of those topics, you know, I really had no inclination that I would touch a topic like this in this podcast, but I find myself discovering or I suppose rather realizing the topics that I want to do for this podcast are ones that kind of suck me in. And the carnivore diet is one of those topics where it has like this magnetism to it. I find myself trying to explain this to my friends, whether or not they asked about the carnivore diet. I find myself talking about this a lot. And this past week, I had a couple friends um, who mentioned this diet to me because they had heard it on a podcast somewhere as it's gotten a little bit more popular. And they knew that I had been on it for quite a while. Um, you know, and I really enjoy sort of explaining how how much I've learned from this really extreme, really restrictive, really specific diet um, that has been gaining popularity for some, some pretty odd reasons. So I've been on the carnivore diet for a year, and I'm going to take you through sort of my dietary background, I guess, what led me to this diet. Um, and, and I have an entire outline for this podcast that we're going to go through, but I want to let you know that you don't have to sit here and listen to an hour plus monologue of one guy talking about um, what he likes to eat. Um, <laughs> I think uh, I think for a lot of people, it's going to be beneficial to hit the description of this podcast and see if there's certain parts of this discussion um, that you might enjoy or that you're more curious about than others. So just so you know, you can go and see all the time codes and skip around this episode if you'd prefer to do that. Or if you want to take it from the top, let's get started. But first, let's circle back because I want to give you a little bit of an introduction to exactly what the carnivore diet is. You know, another name for the carnivore diet is the ZC diet or the zero carb diet because it is truly zero carbs. Now, when you go through lists of foods that are actually zero carb, you realize that it's basically just animal products. I mean, there are no vegetables that have no carbohydrates. Um, there's no nuts, no seeds, no fruits, no legumes. I mean, you name it, there's probably carbs in it unless it is an animal product. And this is a weird part of this conversation that I seem to have with almost everybody is I'll tell them I'm on the carnivore diet and they go, oh, so like mostly meat. I'm like, well, not mostly like 100% meat. They go, oh, but like still vegetables, right? No, zero vegetables. Oh, but like you could still have like fruits and stuff. No, no fruits either. But like like almonds or something? No, it is 100% animal products. One of the phrases that I like to use to describe this diet, and I'm sure I just pulled this off of a Reddit forum or something somewhere, but you know, it is excruciatingly simple. It is painfully simple. If you have to ask yourself, can I eat this or not, it always hinges on, is it 100% an animal product? And so this extends all the way to even like cooking oils, olive oil, no, canola oil, no. What if something is cooked in peanut oil or the butter has soybean oil in it? No, it does not go in your body if it does not come exclusively from an animal product. And there are levels to the carnivore diet. There are some people who choose to not be that strict with it, but I would say for anybody considering a diet like this, you know, it's it's in your best interest to be that strict at least for a period of time so you can truly get this this biological reset that the carnivore diet seems to provide. So as far as what's allowed and not allowed on the carnivore diet, it really couldn't be any simpler. It's so simple that people have to ask 5 times before they accept the simplicity of the diet. It's basically just meat, eggs, and a little bit of dairy if you choose to do that. Some people choose to totally exclude dairy. Um, I'm not one of them, but dairy for me is very, very light, so I don't, I don't eat much of that at all. It truly is just 
different types of meat and eggs. Now, it, it can get more complicated than that because the types of meat that you're eating, um, you know, when you eat it, like, that definitely matters. We'll get into that a little further into this episode, but um, those are the rules. Meat only. That's it. So now let me take you back to my initial interest in a diet like this, and, and really we have to start a little bit further back all the way at keto. Um, so this was when I was, man, probably age 24, 5, or 6, somewhere in there right around mid-20s, and I had some pretty pretty severe and frightening back problems, but it was very hard for me to understand exactly what was going on. I knew that I hadn't had any severe traumatic injury to my back. There was no car crash. There was no weightlifting accident. Um, there was nothing that, that really stuck out as though this was obviously the thing that was causing my back to hurt. But I had back pain in my thoracic spine, or basically the dead center of my back. The muscles on either side of my spine, um, which, you know, your erector spine, they, they would turn hard. And I mean, like, hard to the touch. Like, I, I used to get... I used to spend between two and four hundred dollars on massages every month because that was the most relief that I could find. I would have paid triple that amount of money. I would have gone broke to have found pain relief, but massage seemed to be one of the more helpful things that I could do. So I got massages once, sometimes twice a week um, from this big linebacker of a guy who really just was able to like get into the muscles and unlock them. I, I had found that many people I would go get massages and you know, they were not strong enough to, to really, really get into the muscle. But I did find one guy, his name was Corey, um, great, great masseuse, man. Um, so he helped me out quite a bit, but it was just a maintenance thing. I never felt like I solved the problem. And there was two to three years of really, really struggling with this back pain. And it would give me anxiety as well, because it is, it is scary to think that you have damaged something in your body permanently when you're as young as I was, to be 25 and to think that I might have chronic back pain for the rest of my life, man, that was really anxiety-inducing. And so it was an uncomfortable place to be. So I began researching relentlessly on anything that I could do to relieve this back pain. And I stumbled across several different things that ended up uh, making their way into my daily routine. One of them uh, was yoga. I used to spend between 45 minutes and an hour stretching. Now that was like dedicated stretching. If you count, you know, at night with Netflix on, you know, stretching on the ground in front of the TV, I was stretching probably three hours a day. And you you could ask Kelly, there was there was a solid year to two years where I I wouldn't even sit on the couch. I lived on the floor, on the living room floor. Um, I would work there laying on my stomach with a laptop in front of me. Um, you know, I, I just refused to actually sit on the couch because at some point I was convinced that that had something to do with this back pain. Now, stretching and yoga, it definitely helped. It helped a lot, but I would say it helped somewhere in the order of 50%, right? It did not eliminate the pain ever, ever. Um, even while doing yoga or immediately after or even doing consecutive days in a row, at most it would be a 50% reduction in pain, which made it tolerable and gave me a little bit of hope, but... Man, it never, never removed it. But another thing that I began doing um, was was taking Kratom. Now, Kratom is probably a, an entire episode in itself, but this was a drug. I, I really shouldn't call it a drug is a slang word, you know, whatever. Um, aspirin's a drug. Caffeine's a drug. But, you know, Kratom is a 100% natural substance. It's a leaf um, from a tree. And you effectively grind it up into powder, and you can either eat that powder, uh, put it into small capsules, or just take a, a spoonful of it, or you can brew a tea 
with that powder and make like a kratom tea. And its effects are very similar to opiates. It feels like, I would say, like two milligrams of Oxycontin. That's what it feels like. It's just like you're barely on opiates. Now, what's really cool about kratom is that it has this threshold where if you continually take more and more of it, the effects become unpleasant. You actually get really nauseous. You, you feel really uncomfortable. Uh, for me, it would give me anxiety. So it's sort of self-regulatory in a way. Like you're only going to take so much Kratom in a day because beyond a certain threshold is discomfort. It doesn't actually help. So it is most effective in low doses, which is a really nice part about um, that particular drug. So I would brew Kratom tea, I would make the capsules, and I would take the spoonfuls of the powder. Um, it, it does have sort of an energizing effect, somewhere in the ballpark of coffee, but a little bit little bit stronger. Um, and it, it really helped me out, man. That Kratom, that substance kept me moving for two to three years when I don't know that I would be able to have done very much without it. I mean, it was really, it was that much of a lifesaver. I used to call it my daily driver for a very long time. Um, nicotine, caffeine, and Kratom. For a while, I actually didn't even do caffeine, no coffee. Um, I just did purely Kratom. But you know, after a while, I began wrestling with this idea that this wasn't sustainable. I can't just take Kratom every single day for the rest of my life. Um, you know, and it also began to give me some some GI issues. Uh, similar to opiates, you know, long-term use can lead to constipation. And in 2015, 16, that's definitely what I was dealing with. You know, slow and sluggish and uncomfortable um, and a noticeable difference on the toilet. Sorry, there's gonna be plenty of talk about bowel movements and other types of uh, gut stuff in this podcast, so I'll just get that out of the way. Um, I was dealing with constipation. It sucked. It sucked. It was it was really, really uncomfortable to be otherwise healthy. I exercised and and I ate well as far as I knew. Um, but man, I could I could never get fully comfortable. I felt really sluggish and really stuck in a lot of ways. And so in part, I, I realized that a lot of that was because of Kratom. Um, now, what I used to do, I used to make these shakes. They were protein shakes, but I would also put either like Metamucil or psyllium husk or different types of uh, like organic laxatives in them, and I would make these like giant shakes that would definitely help. But I also didn't like how they made me feel. Like eating this insanely high fiber diet, that's what the protein shake was, right? It's just a huge amount of insoluble fiber. Those never actually made me feel good. It made me feel good in the bathroom, but it didn't actually change anything. It just felt like I'm putting more stuff in and so more stuff comes out, but I still, for the most part, I feel identical. Now, fortunately for me, through the practice of yoga, I was able to figure out what was causing my back pain for the most part, and that was uh, my psoas muscle, which is a, a muscle in your hips. I won't explain it now, maybe I'll throw an image on the screen, but effectively this muscle was locked up from sitting both at the drum set and at a computer desk um, for eight, 10, 12 hours a day. And even though I was exercising, that was only one hour of my day. So my back was just completely locked up because this psoas muscle was locked up and my back was compensating to try and stabilize me in some ways. And that was very, very uncomfortable. Man, it was pretty horrible back pain. But once I got familiar, with the psoas muscle, and I made a mind-muscle connection so I was able to feel what that muscle felt like. I could identify when it was extra tight, and then I, I had um, sort of the, the the stretches that I needed, the positions, 
to actually hit that muscle, stretch it and open it up. And as I stretched that particular muscle, the psoas muscle, my back unlocked. And this didn't happen overnight, it took several months, um, but as I've gotten more, more and more in tune with what the psoas feels like and when it locks up and what that feels like, it's almost like a predictor of back pain. I can tell that my back will lock up next if I can feel this muscle in my hip uh, locking up first. So it's been really, really helpful and it was one of the things that allowed me to stop taking Kratom. So I take Kratom occasionally now, um, but not very often at all, just sort of as needed, I'll take it before I take an Advil, for example. Now, believe it or not, one of the things that actually led me to the ketogenic diet was the digestive problems that I had that were caused from Kratom because I realized that these giant shakes full of insoluble fiber didn't really make me feel any different. And so I began to call, in my own mind, I called bullshit on fiber. Like, this doesn't seem to be working very well. I don't know why that is, but this idea that that the reason you might feel constipated is because you have low fiber, you know, I, I really didn't buy that. My personal experience um, didn't support that idea. And so I finally found the keto community or the ketogenic diet. Um, and this is a diet that is, ultimately it's just a very low carb, low sugar diet. You're supposed to keep your carbohydrates under 40 carbs a day, which means you can't eat unlimited vegetables. Um, you, you can't eat starchy vegetables at all. So you can't have potatoes or anything like that. But you can have leafy greens. You can have salads. Um, and it's virtually no sugar, at least um, such a low amount that you stay in um, ketosis, which is a state that you can get in. Now, the state of ketosis is basically that your body is no longer looking for carbohydrates and sugars uh, or glucose. Your body is actually looking for uh, for fats. So the keto diet is a fat-based diet, and I went on this diet um, sort of on the premise that this might be better for my digestion, and it was. It definitely helped a lot. One of the things that I fell into with the keto diet was that um, you're allowed to have dairy because dairy is high in fat and there's virtually zero carbs and sugar. Um, but I had a little bit too much dairy and that gave me a different set of, uh, of stomach issues, digestion issues. Um, so I, I took that a little bit too far, had to back it down. But I stayed on keto for two to three years. Um, so I was making meals like um, egg salad was a really big one. Egg salad with like walnuts in it. I eat that all the time. Um, bacon and eggs and sausage was huge. I could have um, stuffed peppers, so I'd make jalapenos with cream cheese in them wrapped in bacon. Like really fatty, but really healthy foods otherwise. But ultimately, you can have no rice, no chips, no pastas, no refined grains of any kind. That's really at the core of what keto is. And I definitely found that that diet helped reduce some pain. It didn't alleviate it all the way but it helped a lot. And so as I began piecing together that something about refined carbohydrates and sugars and sitting around all day, you know, those two things seemed to be the biggest contributing factors to my back pain. And as I got those things under control and I began to, you know, totally eliminate refined carbs and sugars from my diet and stretch my psoas muscle, I realized that I was dealing with more like 70 to 80% reduction in my back pain. And you have to remember, after you know two to three years of feeling that back pain, you will try a crazy ass diet. I mean, pain will make you do all sorts of wild shit, right? 
but I, I knew that I was on to something. I knew that I had come, you know, relatively close to finding a solution here. So that was very, very exciting for me. So ultimately I became like a hardcore keto person, stayed on that diet for, I want to say somewhere in the ballpark of three years. Um, but there was one exception to that diet. And that was actually when I built this studio, the recording studio that I'm in right now. Um, I built that over uh, two to three months in the summer of 2019 when I first bought this house. And working in a 120 degree garage alone all day doing construction, framing walls, drywalling, painting, insulation, you know, the output, the physical exertion that I had to have, I absolutely had to have carbs. I was so beat up and exhausted every single day that the only way I could give myself like this bolt of energy or rather jolt of energy was uh, was to eat like a giant plate of pasta. And it was kind of cool because I gained almost no weight. I mean, I spent, you know, five, sometimes seven days a week, you know, in this studio, 10 to 12 hours pouring sweat from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. I mean, this was just my entire life. And again, I worked alone, you know, for 29 days out of the month, I was working alone. So physically, it was one of the hardest things that I've ever done. I joke that I took like a year or two off of my life building this studio. And uh, I hope to never have to do anything <laughs> that difficult again physically. Um, but, you know, I, keto didn't work for me in, in that environment. Now, did my back hurt when I started, you know, eat, eating more carbs? Yes. You know, I definitely noticed more inflammation. Um, but, one of the things that you'll find if you've ever experienced chronic pain is that staying moving is one of the best things that you can do. So it didn't really bother me too much to have that back pain kind of come back because I was just moving all day, every day, moving, moving, moving. So I would have a little bit of Kratom, kind of forget about it and just blast through it. It was just what I had to do. But um, you know, shortly after this uh, this studio was completed, I did go back on keto, and then for the remainder of that year, um, I began researching like different versions of keto, and that's when I finally stumbled across the carnivore diet. So the way I first heard about the carnivore diet was through two particular guys who had done podcasts on Rogan, and they've done many other podcasts. They have their own podcasts as well. That would be Dr. Sean Baker and Dr. Paul Saladino. Uh, yes, the guy with salad in his last name is one of the uh, world-leading world-leading dudes on the carnivore diet, uh, or at least um, eating more animal products. So um, in hearing probably a collective total of 10 hours of conversation in podcasts between these two guys, um, I was very, very interested. They they made a lot of excellent points that I had a hard time wrestling with, and I want to give you some of those now, um, just as sort of these overarching perspectives. I don't want to call them philosophies because I'm not married to these ideas, but they are certainly interesting ideas that I think everybody should wrestle with, at, at least if you have a certain amount of interest in nutrition. So one of the big selling points um, initially for me was this idea that if you survey the plant kingdom, all the plants in the entire world, we eat under 1% of them. 99% of them are either poison, totally undigestible, or otherwise not nutritious. If I just drop you in the forest somewhere, more than likely, anything that you see around you, anything that you just grab, pick up, grab anything, that's more than likely poison, right? So, even though we think, you know, we go to the grocery store and see this, this huge array of colorful fruits and vegetables, 
You have to remember that we have hand-selected the ones that we're able to eat and digest and that have certain nutrients in them, but a huge majority of the plant kingdom is totally inedible. And when I say majority, I mean 99 plus percent of shit out in the woods will kill you. you. You just can't eat that stuff. But when we survey the animal kingdom, there are less than 1% of animals that your body does not already know how to digest. You can eat 99% of animals that are in the world. And, you know, you don't have to like that for it to be true, you know? It doesn't mean that you have to eat animal products to be healthy, but it is, it's an observable fact about the world that we live in. We can eat a majority of the animals that are here. Our body knows what to do with them, but we cannot eat a majority of the plants that are here They're either poison or our body has no idea what to do with them. So that was a major selling point for me. Philosophically, I had to wrestle with that one. Um, It's a tough one to wrap your mind around. Another huge selling point for me was this idea of calling bullshit on fiber. And this was something that Dr. Sean Baker and Paul Saladino have both elaborated on quite a bit. I'm not going to get all bro science on you here and tell you that that I'm an expert on, on these topics. But... You know, hopefully my my year of experience um, can, can give me a little bit of credibility here. But this idea that um, that fiber cleans out the pipes, so to speak, that eating something that is by definition indigestible, right? Because that's what insoluble fiber is. It cannot be digested by your body. The idea that that eating things that your body doesn't know what to do with, that it will move through you and sort of scrape clean your intestines or your colon in some way. I, I no longer believe that in, in any capacity. I think the the idea, as it was articulated by Dr. Uh, Paul Saladino, is that if the pipes are broken, if they're not moving things through them correctly, adding more shit into the pipe doesn't do anything to solve the problem. And really, you can think about that in like a plumbing analogy. If the sink is clogged, putting a bunch of shit down the sink is not the right way to clean out the sink, right? There's another problem that has to be solved. It's not just piling stuff on and expecting it to all just move through. At least that's just not how it seems to work. And there is this overarching idea here with fiber, um, not just fibrous foods, but take any food that your body does not digest. So here's a great example, corn. Do you know why you can see it in the toilet? It's because your body doesn't want that, or at least it doesn't have any idea what to do with it. It is totally non-digestible. Any food that you can see in the toilet If it looks relatively the same, it's because it had a low bioavailability. It means your body was unable to take anything from this, and so it passes through your body undigested. And I've slowly begun to believe this idea that if my body doesn't know what to do with it, and it's merely passing through, then maybe I shouldn't be putting it in there to begin with. Now, meat, on the other hand, especially, really, let's just use egg whites as an example. Egg whites have a bioavailability of over 99%, meaning your body absorbs almost every single molecule of this protein. Um, And to be honest, this is one of the weird things that happens on the carnivore diet, is that you don't solve the GI problems, the problems of constipation, you don't solve them by shitting more. You solve them by not shitting at all. And I don't mean at all, but like 80% less. I mean, you'll go sometimes 24 hours without going. And it's it's not that you feel like you have to, it just the feeling never even comes up. You feel light and lean and empty all the time. So it's almost like this idea of adding fiber, you know, it makes you feel like you have to go to the bathroom and you do because you're eating something that your body doesn't 
literally does not want to digest. So of course you have to go to the bathroom more, but it was sort of this roundabout way of looking at the problem in that, well, what if you just didn't have to go that much because your body absorbs a a very large majority of the nutrients that are in this food. And this is the case with foods like egg whites. It's got a 99% um, bioavailability. So your body knows what to do with it, it absorbs most of it, and the end result of that is that you really just don't have to shit that much. So this argument of the fiber fantasy or the fiber myth and this idea that we shouldn't be putting foods in our body that our body is telling us it does not want to digest at all, you know, that idea combined with the high bioavailability of meat and eggs um, sort of lays the groundwork for this new idea, and that is that you really don't need to shit that often. It's just not something that has to happen um, you know, twice a day, which is how we're kind of told uh, in the Western world that, you know, once or twice a day for men is healthy. I don't believe that anymore. Um, so anyway, early on, these are some of the things that, that I found very interesting. I found these to be compelling arguments. And so they led me to eventually try this diet. Now, there are two other points that I want to give you, and maybe they're not points as much as they are positions or perspectives that one could have on this idea of eating only animal products. So of these last two, the first one is this idea of what you would have eaten historically um, pre-agriculture. And so if agriculture is this idea that we can take certain foods and sort of grow them and scale them to a certain degree and then feed a population of people that we could transport that food, you know, around the planet, right? Before that happened, how would you obtain food? Well, you would really, from, from 200 years ago and before, you know, really before there were vehicles and before there was refrigeration, before there was, you know, modern me methods of preserving food, for all of human history before then let's call it 200 years ago, you would have only eaten what was immediately available in your geographic area. So that would include all of the animals that you could hunt in that area that you were able to catch or trap, or, or maybe you were, if you lived near a body of water, it was mostly fish that you were eating, but that would be your main source of food. And beyond that, it would be whatever fruits and vegetables are, are around. And you have to be honest here that the reality is there is not going to be a selection of 50 different types of vegetables. There's not going to be 50 fruit trees around any area that you're able you know, to, to travel or to navigate, especially when we didn't have vehicles of any kind. I mean, you were, this is straight up hunter-gatherer territory. You are gathering what's available in the area and you're hunting for whatever you're able to hunt for. But the point here is that Whatever combination of fruits and vegetables and meats you were eating, more than likely, it wasn't a large amount of those things. Your diet would likely consisted of five, six, seven, eight foods, and that was it. Maybe your entire life was actually that way. And so part of the philosophy of having this ultra-simplified diet, which you don't necessarily have to be on carnivore you know, to adhere to, but part of the philosophy is that when we reduce the amounts of food that we eat, that what we do is we simplify our gut biome by asking our body to just not break down foods that are from all over the world. And really, this is unfortunately kind of the Western diet. I mean, how normal is it to have Thai food on Monday, Mexican on Tuesday, Italian on Wednesday? Like that, that concept is very normalized here. But what you're actually doing is asking your body to keep the enzymes in your stomach alive in order to break down fucking everything that the world has to offer. So the argument would be, 
you know, did we evolve to even do that? Is it realistic that we could ask our body to break down foods that come from all over the world? Because your body or your stomach and your gut biome might not give a shit that we're able to refrigerate some food from the other side of the world and bring it here and that it's still edible. That doesn't mean your body knows what to do with that. And historically, it's tough to make an argument that our bodies have adapted to eat foods that are from all over the planet. It makes a lot more sense to me that we would have adapted to eat a very small amount of foods and that our body learns to know what to do with them. And the second perspective I want to share with you is kind of built in here, and that is one um, of simplifying your gut biome. So the way to think about this is that um, you know your gut has enzymes in it that break down different foods, different enzymes for different foods, depending on what they are. And so when we say somebody is lactose intolerant, what we're really saying is that they don't have the proper enzymes in their gut biome, the, the proper bacteria to break down lactose. And so lactose tends to sit in their body and it will cause gas and and all sorts of uncomfortable digestive feelings because they don't have the proper enzymes. Now, the way I think about gut bacteria and enzymes is that, you know, each enzyme is there to do a specific task. And whenever you eat something, it is a task for your body. You're asking your body to do a certain thing. And so when we eat this wide variety of foods, we're, we're creating what I would, I, I perceptualize it this way, like a complex gut biome. Your, the bacteria that's in your stomach has to be there's a, well, there's a lot of different enzymes. You're requiring your body to break down all sorts of different foods. So you would have like a complex gut biome as opposed to one that is simplified where you're basically asking your body to do a small amount of tasks, like you're eating a small amount of foods. Um, and so you would have like a simpler gut biome. This is about as bro sciency as I'm gonna get today. Uh, but this is at least like on a conceptual level how I think about it from all the information that I've gathered um, from listening to podcasts on this topic and the importance of having a healthy gut biome. This would also perhaps be an argument for why we shouldn't eat as much fruit as we think because fruit trees don't tend to bloom year-round, right? That, that's really not realistic for most places on the planet. If there is a fruit that grows natively to your, to your geographical area, it might only grow fruit once a year. So it would be a very occasional treat, not necessarily something that you have every single day, much less that those fruits came from all over the country or all over the world, there's just no argument that you would have had access to that that selection of fruits. And you can apply this to vegetables, and I guess you could even apply it to meats as well, but um, this was a pretty compelling argument for me. If not for going on carnivore, then at least for this concept that you should have an ultra-simplified diet. And I know that kind of sucks for anybody that grew up in the U.S. where we're used to enjoying all sorts of different cultures' food, but it is a reality that I've, uh, I've become pretty comfortable with nowadays. Now, before we move on, there is one other thing that convinced me to look into this diet, and it was sort of rooted in, I'll call it like a rebellious spirit. And it was when I watched the documentary called What the Health, when that came out on Netflix. And I've had conversations with vegan friends of mine who admit that that documentary is utter bullshit. It is vegan propaganda start to finish. There are lies, outright lies in that documentary. Now, there are other documentaries on Netflix that I do take issue with um, who contort facts, manipulate epidemiological studies in ways that, that I don't find to be totally honest, or they exclude studies that would contradict what they're saying. But 
It was when I saw the documentary, What the Health. That one, I <laughs> could ask Kelly, I was fucking screaming at the TV. I could not believe the things that I was hearing. Um, things along the lines that that sugar is in no way connected to diabetes, that animal fats are sort of the, the exclusive causes of all Western cancers. I mean, stuff that, that contradicts everything I had ever heard um, from the nutritional podcast realm. So... You know, in hearing that, I had to at least personally debunk some of these things that I was hearing in this documentary because, again, I just knew these to be completely false. And so in researching, um, you know, and making an attempt to debunk some of these things that I heard, uh, which I just innately rejected as I heard them in this fucking documentary, um, you know, I began to stumble across um, some of these authors and doctors like Paul Saladino and Sean Baker, and then in listening to their works and entertaining some of their arguments and their positions, um, I became more and more interested in this idea of um, even excluding, you know, fruits and vegetables from your diet. So anyway, these are all of the things that led me to take interest in this diet and ultimately try it on March 1st of 2020. And here we are. Um, today's St. Patrick's Day. Got my green on. That was an accident, but I'll take it. Um, so yeah, here we are, you know, well over a year later and um, still kicking. So let me take you back to that month of March and walk you through what happens when you first get on this diet because, well, I'll save you a little bit of time here. The first week or two weeks really suck. It's pretty miserable initially. Now I came from keto, so my body was already accustomed to um, to, to fat. You know, my body was looking for fat. Fat had been my energy source for quite a while, so I didn't have quite as hard of a transition as some people might have. There are some people whose transition period can be between two and four weeks. Um, you know, I would say mine was really six days. Six days I was in the same state. From day one to day six was exactly the same, and I'll describe to you what that was like. Day one of eating just meat, very low energy. I mean extremely low energy. I could always take a nap. Totally fatigued, uh, mild headache, and just really hard to get going, man. I was just dragging my feet around the house. Even the thought of like washing a dish or making a cup of coffee is just like, ugh. It was, it was like being sick. I had the energy level of somebody who had a flu. It was, uh, it was, it was pretty uncomfortable. But I also knew that my body was going through some pretty dramatic changes, and so I was very prepared to go through like a hell week, and that's kind of what it was. Um, so six days of that. Now, it is interesting because what happens right away is you don't get constipated, which is kind of what you think might happen when you start eating nothing but like steak and eggs all day. It's kind of the opposite. You actually get diarrhea, and really unpredictable, weird diarrhea. I mean, like, it comes out black, sorry, no, that's kind of gross, but it just does. Um, virtually black, like half water. And what's happening, as it's been explained to me, is that your your body is effectively trying to regulate what it does with the water that has to pass through your bowels when there's no fiber for it to blend with, right? So you, you effectively get very small, very hard chunks of feces. Sorry, we just got to go all in. Uh, name of the podcast, I guess. Um, and that, that's combined with water. So it's like pebbles and water is kind of what comes out. Yeah, it, it sucks. It sucks. And there's about a week to two weeks of that until it normalizes. And when it stops, it never really comes back that way again. I've never experienced um, what I experienced in that week 
it's it's just like an adaptation phase in a weird way. Um, and once it stabilizes, it totally stabilizes. All of the unpredictability of your stomach completely goes away. Uh, but that is what you're gonna deal with in the transition week. And um, just suck it up, just deal with it, you know, make some coffee, get through the energy part, and uh, hang on until it goes away. So for me, everything went away on day seven. I woke up on day seven, and it was completely different. On day seven, I only slept six hours, which is very weird because in my entire life, I've always slept between seven and a half and eight hours. You know, maybe back in the drinking days, I would sleep 14 hours or something, but you know, I had never slept under seven and a half hours. Anything under that, I could certainly tell. It just felt like I hadn't slept enough. I was tired and sluggish all day. But I popped up having only slept six hours. I went to bed at probably 1 a.m. and I woke up at 7 a.m fucking wide awake. I mean, absolutely wired. It felt like someone had given me Kratom in my sleep or that somebody had given me six shots of espresso right before I woke up. I mean, I was just absolutely wired. Even to the point where Kelly would notice in conversation that like I'm I'm very talkative, like very, very talkative, right? I think there were even a couple times where she would say like, did you take a bunch of Kratom or did you just have coffee? Like it's 9 p.m., like can you chill out? Like that's how it was. It was really, I felt, I felt hyper in a lot of ways. So that was a really interesting observation right away, was an insane amount of energy, over the top energy. Um, and that definitely stabilizes, but that was one of the first major pros um, that happened to me. Now, one thing about the sleep that was very interesting is that that six hours became permanent. I only sleep six hours a night now, no matter what. I couldn't sleep six hours and one minute if you fucking paid me. I just pop awake at six hours every single time. And, you know, I, I really don't care that much if I sleep six hours or seven and a half hours or nine hours. As long as I feel good and I'm getting enough rest, you know, I'm, I'm okay. But I can tell you, having only slept six hours for an entire year, man, there is something really cool about this when you start to run the math on what it's like to gain that much time every single day. So if you run the math, gaining one hour per day of, of you know, awakened consciousness, you know, that's seven hours a week. And seven times four, that's 28 hours a month. That's a whole fucking day of every month, an entire day of every month that you get back. And then span that out over the entire year. So that's 12 days. Dude, you get two extra weeks in a year of being awake. I think I'm doing that math right off the top of my head. And then span that out over several years. Man, you, you can tack like a year onto your life because I don't count sleeping as living necessarily. It's just a thing that we have to do. But the idea that I could just shave off an hour and a half every night, you know, I went from not caring about that at all to really loving that. Now it feels like if I do sleep eight hours, which does happen on occasion, um, I feel like robbed. Like, man, why did I have to sleep that extra hour and a half? So stupid. You know, I, I really like uh, getting up um, after only sleeping six hours. It feels like I'm saving a ton of time. And you know, it allows me to stay up late and get up early. And those are two things that I really like doing. I like uh, staying up late. I'm a total night owl. And well, I don't have much of a choice. Always had insomnia. Um, but you know, I, I like getting up early as well. And I, it's one of those things where you kind of get best of both worlds if you just don't have to sleep that much, right?
Now, before we move on from the very beginning here, another thing you should know is that in that first six days, um, weight loss is rapid. It is very, very rapid. Um, it'll kind of freak you out too. I didn't really feel a desire to lose weight. I've always been um, right around 160 to 170, somewhere in the 160s is where I found myself as an adult. Uh, my weight has always been right around there. When I went to rehab and I was able to eat anything I wanted all the time, um, I left rehab at 188. That's the heaviest I've ever been. I was huge. Didn't really like it either. It was um, also couldn't afford it. You know, I was <laughs> I was totally unable to to buy the amount of food that's required for me to stay around that 190 mark. But that's about the biggest that I've ever been. Um, and so I went from probably 165 when I started the carnivore diet. I was 155 within a week's time. I mean, I really dropped weight quickly. And I wasn't, that wasn't my goal. I didn't want to lose weight, but I just did. So if you're somebody who is um, looking into the carnivore diet for the idea of losing weight, it is, it is unbelievably good at doing that. You will lose some fucking weight, trust me. So that's kind of week one. You lose some weight, you feel really tired, you have crazy diarrhea, and then at some point, if it's anything like my experience, you'll wake up and have this absurd amount of energy, um, and you won't need to sleep that much. So those are two of the biggest pros, but now let me take you through the rest of them because this list is actually pretty long. Now in this domain of energy, it's not just that you have a high level of energy, but it's also that there are no dips, no dips in your energy at all. There is no lull in the day. And as a matter of fact, the way that you feel when you wake up is exactly how you feel when you go to bed. There's, there's like no difference between the two, whether it's 5 p.m. or 9 p.m. or 8 a.m., you feel exactly the same in terms of your energy. You know, and I also found that that coffee and other stimulants didn't really have that much of an effect on me. I could drink coffee, but I never really felt it. It was like there was a greater source of energy that sort of overrid whatever else I wanted to do to create energy. So even like working out, you know, you sometimes you feel a little bit zapped after a workout. I felt exactly the same. I didn't feel energized by the workout and I didn't feel tired from the workout. There was like nothing I could do to make my energy peak or dip. It was just exactly the same all day. Now, another huge pro, and I wish I had the blood work to support this. I'm getting blood work very soon, so maybe we'll do a follow-up and, and uh, post the blood work here after a full year on this diet. Um, but I can say with great confidence that one of the things you experience immediately is a crazy testosterone boost. And I say that confidently because of how it feels. It feels very, very unique to have a testosterone boost to the degree uh, that you do on this diet. Man, day seven and forward, I don't want to say that it made me angrier or inherently more aggressive, but kind of. I used to joke with, with Kelly, I would say, it gives me a 10% more likelihood to get in a fist fight. Like my bullshit meter goes off a whole lot faster than it used to. And it doesn't mean that I'm angry, but my level of tolerance for what I would describe as like nonsense, whether in a, in a bullshit conversation with someone or in, a, in an email that I'm typing about a problem with maybe the website or something, like in all of these interactions, it was very, very decisive. I was very to the point and sort of unwilling to fuck around a lot, a lot more. Um, scheduling my day was like that. I was, I was aggressive in how I approached my days, how I thought about tasks and getting things done. It was very no nonsense. Um, and it gave me this, 
this high level of like order in how I operated things. And I attribute that to the crazy testosterone boost. There was also um, something that, that I remember Rogan had said on, on one of his podcasts about this, that it gives you a few more demons to work out in the gym. And I experienced that for sure. It's not that you have more energy necessarily in the gym or that you're more explosive. It's not that you could measure it in like a, like a physical way, but like your mindset, um, you are more excited to be aggressive in the gym. Like you're just more likely to have that kind of workout with a higher level of intensity. And I don't really know why, um, that's just how it felt. And of course, the other thing in the testosterone category would be sex drive. Sex drive definitely went up. Just, you know, sex will cross your mind more often than it would otherwise. That's kind of the best way I would describe it. It's not that it changes the experience of sex necessarily, but your drive to have it certainly goes up. And these are all products of having higher testosterone, which is something that sort of universally happens when people get on this diet. Um, there's a lot of people that have pu published blood work that kind of show that this is, this is definitely what happens when you go on a diet like this, uh, along with many other things as well. But um, yeah, I'm excited to get some blood work done and uh, follow up with that soon. So testosterone boost, very, very cool thing to experience for sure. And I'm, I'm under the impression that I still live with the benefit of higher testosterone, um, having you know been on this diet for a full year. But I can tell you that the biggest benefit, the thing that has kept me on this diet for a full year and keeps me uninterested in changing it is the reduction in pain. My back pain is reduced depending on the day you know, from, I don't know, 95 to 99%. I mean, there are definitely days where where I could say I'm completely pain-free, completely pain-free. Not every day is like that. I can still feel my back sometimes, um, especially if I neglect it, if I'm not doing, um, you know, if I had a day where I'm, where I'm on the computer for eight hours and I'm sitting, though normally I stand when I do that. But, you know, days like that, I can always trace it to something where, oh, that's why I can kind of feel my back a little. But for the most part, the, the reduction in pain has been, you know, 90 plus percent every single day that I've been on this diet. And I don't know what to do with that information. I don't know what to do with this idea that on keto, you know, I would say my, my pain was reduced like in half, maybe half would, would be the best, the best that I could come up with. And all I did when I went from keto to carnivore was stop eating vegetables. That's all that I did. I just cut out eating vegetables. I wasn't eating fruits on keto. You can't eat that anyway. And of course, I don't think there's much of a strong argument that like you have to have fruits to survive. There's a whole lot of people that, that don't eat fruit regularly. Um, but vegetables is, is the odd one because I wasn't eating sugar. I wasn't eating bread. I wasn't eating um, refined carbohydrates and bullshit fast food and processed food, gas station food. I mean, you name the, the cheap food source that, that Americans tend to have in their diet. I wasn't eating any of that. I was eating effectively meat and vegetables. And I stopped eating all of the vegetables. This was the transition from keto to carnivore. And my back pain completely went away, completely. I don't know what to do with that information, but it was shocking. So the month of March in 2020 was me trying to wrap my head around how I can just stop eating vegetables, only eat fatty meats, and all of a sudden my back doesn't hurt anymore. So much so that I don't even stretch anymore. I don't stretch at all. I haven't had like a, a dedicated session for stretching my back or my hips or anything. I haven't done that in a year because I, I haven't had to. My back has never hurt so bad that I've had to go like 
sit down and stretch. That's like a foreign idea to me now. And at one point, it was like a fucking religion. It was it was absolutely mandatory that I spent an hour plus every single day on the ground stretching. I did a yoga for drummers course, right? Because it was that vital to me every day. I said, man, if this is such an important part of my life, I might as well share it um, with a community of people. And it's funny, man. I, I have to do none of that now, ever, ever. Now, what's weird about this and what's kind of troubling is that if I try to reintroduce certain foods into my diet, which I have done over the last year, I've tried a variety of different foods to reintroduce them in small portions and just kind of see how my body handles them, it almost universally goes bad. There's very, very few foods that are not animal products that my body can handle. And... This sounds fucking insane. When I first heard this on a podcast years ago, I called bullshit like everybody else called bullshit. And there was this story that Dr. Sean Baker um, had laid out where he basically had been on carnivore for several months and he had had um, a huge reduction in pain and inflammation in his body. But then he ate an apple and he got like a migraine and a backache immediately. And the reaction, this was on a Rogan podcast, I think his first appearance there, um, the reaction that Rogan had was somewhere along the lines of like, wait a minute, like you ate an apple and your back hurt? Like bullshit, bullshit, that doesn't make any sense. And I'm telling you, I have experienced this. With an apple specifically, but not just apples, um, eating, eating a couple bites of salad and feeling my back hurt within five minutes. And you know, you might say that that's, that it's, uh, it's physiological or that it's some sort of placebo effect, I really don't think so. I really don't think so because I'm still not under the belief that, let's just say, like apples are bad for you. I, I don't believe that. Um, but I have certainly experienced like, like cramps in my hips after eating a couple bites of asparagus. Like within 20 to 30 minutes, I can feel like my wedding ring fit tighter on my finger within 30 to 45 minutes of eating healthy foods. Not, I'm not eating junk. Of course, if you ate like a giant, you know, <laughs> like a bowl of lasagna, well like, yeah, you're gonna feel some inflammation. No, I'm talking like small bites of fruit, small bites of vegetables. Almost universally, this is what happens. And so you develop this aversion to fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds and anything that is not meat. You develop this aversion because you begin to associate those things with pain, right? And again, I don't know what to do with this information. It's not that I'm telling you that, hey, all of your back pain is caused by the fact that you're eating spinach. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense and I don't have a really strong argument to support that idea other than the fact that this is what fucking happens to me when I eat spinach. My back hurts, I get a migraine. Um, I feel my body become inflamed and all of these aches and pains that I've not had to deal with for a year, they just completely return. Now again, I don't know what to do with this information. I don't know what you should do with this information. It's very hard to make sense of, um, but it is one of the things, really it's the main thing that has kept me on this diet for an entire year, is that you know, going back to other foods comes with pain. It comes with pain. So that sucks. Now there are some foods that I have had decent luck with. I'll give you some, some really obscure examples. Like small amounts of berries don't seem to bother me. And when I say small amounts, I mean like five blueberries or two or three raspberries. Don't seem to feel them very much when that happens. Honey is another one that's interesting because honey is just carbs and sugar. Um, 
but that doesn't seem to bother me either. Like a, a little squirt of honey and some tea. Oh, really, I don't I don't have tea. I don't know why I said tea. But like, even though I'm just taking like a quick, like uh, just squirting a little bit of honey in your mouth. Honey doesn't seem to bother me for some reason. Um, what else? I've found that like um, non-fibrous vegetables don't seem to bother me. So that would be like tomatoes or cucumbers, really, really small amounts. Again, I'm talking like a couple bites of it. You eat the whole tomato, your day's fucked. That's that's how that works. Um, so th there's there's a small amount of foods that are okay, but it's not many, it's not many. Things like basically all fruits, I'll say, uh, with the exception of some, some berries in very small amounts, all fruits, and everything that is in like the leafy green category. So any any ingredient of a salad that you might find is the hardest pass for me. I've tried it more than once and it goes bad every time. If it's not severe stomach cramping, then it's diarrhea. If it's not diarrhea, then it's back pain. If it's not back pain, then it's a headache. If it's not a headache, then it's stomach cramping. I mean, it's just universally bad. And conversely, you you adapt so well to eating meat that, that eating any amount of meat gives you like no stomach problems at all. And you actually, you adapt to a point where you can eat a crazy amount of meat. Now, I have no doubt that I could sit down and eat 64 ounces of steak, no problem. Multiple pounds of red meat, no problem. Um, it doesn't start that way, but you get that way because when meat is the only thing that you eat, you end up, you end up needing a lot more of it than you're used to because it's not just a portion of the meal, it's the whole meal. So if it's the only thing you're eating, 12 ounces of steak is not enough. A, a normal sit down like portion of steak for me for a real meal would be more like 24 to 36 ounces, somewhere in there, which is, you know, for the most part, double what you're gonna get at a restaurant. It's like two orders of steak, really. One other weird thing in the pro category before we move on to the cons, this is one that has stabilized. It's not as extreme as it used to be, but in the first couple months, I would experience euphoria after eating steak. And I hesitate to tell people this part because it sounds the most like bullshit of anything that I could tell you here. You get, you get literally high when you eat steak. It is like some sort of manipulation of a reward system in your mind, which I imagine would be linked to like a, a predatory reward system. So back, go back hunter-gatherer times, if you had spent a very, very long time in hunger, hunting an animal, when you get that animal, it would make sense that when you finally eat it and consume it, that your body would produce a dopaminergic reward response, right? Like something, something to let you know that, hey, this is a good thing, keep doing it, keep doing it. And I'm telling you, it, it, it's happened, you know, <laughs> so many hundreds of times that, that I, I, I feel like I have to include it in this podcast. There are times where I get deeply euphoric, like shortness of breath, tunnel vision, like almost like, like a cocaine high. It was why I say, say dopamine is likely involved. It feels kind of like a cocaine high, obviously nowhere near as extreme, um, but it's like a, like a focused, rushy, enjoyable, euphoric, panicky type of feeling. It feels awesome, it feels fucking awesome. It's like an incredible reward like mechanism that goes off in your mind. And it will last for almost the duration of the meal, five, 10, or 15 minutes as you're eating. Um, and it happens within like two to three minutes of you eating. So it is definitely the food hitting you. It's not just like the thought of meat because it doesn't happen until you begin eating and a few minutes after. But 
I don't know what to do with that information either. I don't know what the fuck to tell you about that, you know, getting stoned from eating steak. I don't know, but I know I've read this online. There's a number of people that have experienced it, and both Joe Hodgen and I, who was on last week's episode, um, him and I experienced the same thing. And I remember we had a very hesitant conversation about like, you know, not wanting to sound crazy, but like, hey man, have you felt like, I don't know, like weird after you eat steak? And I'm like, you mean getting stoned? Like getting high, like a Coke high off of off of eating a ribeye? He's like, yup, yup, it's that weird, man. So I don't know what to tell you about that, but it's a real thing. Now, before we move on to the cons or some of the downsides of this diet, I do wanna tell you that all of these pros you know, whether it's high levels of energy, stable energy and stable mood throughout the day, um, testosterone boost, reduction of pain and inflammation, um, GI problems greatly being reduced, you know, euphoria when you're eating, if you want to put that in the pro category, you know, all of these are less extreme now than they were a year ago. There is a certain level of like homeostasis that you achieve or a, or a physiological stability that you achieve where these benefits don't go away, but they're not as intense as they, they used to be. Like the, the energy levels off. I don't feel like I'm on Kratom all the time now. Though I do find that my energy is equally as stable as it was a year ago. The like surge of energy is, is not quite there. That certainly leveled off. Um, same with like, like pain relief. It's not that it, it goes away. I think it's also that you acclimate to this state right? So I don't feel like like I'm just a teenager with no pains whatsoever. Sometimes shit hurts on me, but I'm used to this, this level of, of anti-inflammatoriness, <laughs> like not being inflamed that much, right? So you acclimate to a lot of these things. It's not as crazy now as it used to be. Um, so just something to keep in mind, you know, the experience of the first few months is relatively intense and that does level off after some time. So now let's talk about downsides. Because there are some downsides, and I'll give you the biggest one for me. It is dietary sensitivity. I am, I use this word in the last podcast, or this phrase rather, I'm a culinary pussy. There are so many foods that I cannot eat or that I am genuinely scared to eat. And that sucks. You know, it sucks to be in a nice restaurant and to say, man, I'd love to try a piece a bite of this dessert that maybe Kelly got, or maybe I'm eating with a friend and my friend got, um, you know, I don't know, a side of this thing or that thing, Some even if it's just a vegetable or a fruit, I won't take that bite because I am scared. I'm scared that it will ruin me for two or three days, that I'll have stomach cramps, that I'll, I'll leave this restaurant with a headache, that I'm gonna spend the next two days on the toilet because that happens more often than not. And so that sucks. It really, really sucks. And this even... Even down to like dips, you know, hopefully it's clear from the introduction of this podcast, no, you can't dip the meat in anything. You can't have ranch and barbecue and any of that bullshit. You can't have any of that. So even the idea that I'm having like, you know, for a special occasion, maybe I could get some barbecue sauce to go with this pile of pork that I'm eating. No, I can't. Um, I am that sensitive to virtually everything except animal products. And that is really, really annoying. Um, it's it's just this idea that you cannot cheat on the diet at all because it comes with this immediate and overwhelming consequence that it's just not worth it. So that sucks. It, it From an experiential standpoint, it is very limiting in that way. There are no off days. I mean, I guess you can eat the piece of lasagna if you want, but you know, you're going to have to pay for that for several days. So you end up not, uh, you know, you end up just not, not taking the bait. You never have bites of anything else, you know? 
Another downside, and this is one that, that has only come up a, a handful of times, but sort of in that wheelhouse of testosterone boost, um, there were times, especially in the first few months as I was still kind of acclimating to the feeling of this diet, because it is a very specific feeling, um, I would have occasional irritability. And not angry outbursts, not anything like that, but there were times where it was like the testosterone boost got the best of me, and I would feel just not in like a pleasant mood. I wouldn't call it a bad mood, but like not calm enough, right? There were times where it felt um, like I, I couldn't I couldn't get calm. I had to be doing something. It was go, go, go. It was, it was um, like a winner's attitude. But sometimes I just want to sit down and have a glass of water and watch a YouTube video, right? It was like an inability to fully relax. Um, so I would put that in the category of like like occasional irritability. But again, that has completely gone away, but it was something that I had to work through over a period of a few months, um, especially back in the beginning. And I attribute that to, you know, the higher, the, the boost in testosterone, really. It was just, just getting used to that. Another huge one, and this is, a, this is one that's probably more problematic for some people than others, uh, but the social element of this diet, you are really so limited in what you can eat that it does affect your relationships. Kelly has had to get used to me being on this diet because she knows that there are a number of restaurants that I cannot or will not go to. I mean, there are restaurants where everything on the menu is off limits for me, everything. Or there's this reality that like, you can go to a steakhouse. That sounds like ideal for a carnivore, except that they don't just sell a la carte steaks. Everything, like the price that's built in comes with sides. And I can eat none of the sides, none of them. So you end up overpaying for food a lot of times if you go to a place like that. So that kind of thing can be really annoying. Really, for me nowadays, you know, certain burger places would be my go-to if I'm eating out, though I really don't eat out that much, you know, maybe we'll, we'll Postmates or Uber eat some food occasionally. So for me, that would be a, like a bunless, bacon cheeseburger would be about the most that I can do as far as like delivered food or even going to a restaurant really. It's uh, it's tough, man, it's really tough. So there is a social consequence to this. If you're someone who, you know, is, is deeply plugged in or rather if like the culinary experience is a part of your social life that eating and sharing food with people and going to dinners with people or even at home in like a family environment, if that is deeply important to you, this will be very hard, it will be very hard for you. Now, I should clarify, one of the reasons that I'm able to do this, that it doesn't bother me, is that I am the, the opposite of a foodie. I, if I could press a button and be optimally healthy and never, ever have to eat food again, I would smash that fucking button. I, I really get annoyed by food more than I enjoy it, I dislike that I have to do this multiple times a day or else I die. It feels like a trap and it makes me, <laughs> it just makes me like, I don't wanna fall for it, right? Um, so I look at uh, I look at food, as, it's just something that disinterests me completely. So the idea of, of this extreme simplicity, this excruciating simplicity, it, it almost re relieves me of like a burden of having to think about food because something about not having to make any decision at all is, is a relief for me, right? Because having to make the decision, like a culinary decision, what am I gonna cook, what am I gonna eat, what are the ingredients, do I like it, is it nutritious? To not have to think about any of that shit is just fantastic. So 
I, I'm willing to sacrifice the social part because it, it, for me, it's a forfeiture of the decision, which feels like a burden of what am I going to eat. To give that up to me feels great. To you, that might sound miserable. So food for thought. Another one of the cons, and this is kind of a silly one, but it's true, uh, messy cooking. You will wreck your fucking kitchen on this diet because you're cooking in so much fat. Uh, and we're gonna get into exactly what I eat you know, here shortly, but you know, that's another one. You can ask Kelly. It, uh, it's very difficult to keep the kitchen clean when there's constantly like animal fats and butters and ghee and beef tallow and like you're frying things, not frying, but you know, like, like in a pan cooking with butter. It just gets fucking messy. So that's something that you do have to consider. Um, one thing I would highly recommend, I think Kelly and I actually talked about this on, on our podcast. Um, I would definitely recommend the, it's called the Cousy Max. I don't fucking know what the name of it. Like an electric griddle. Get one of those. It will definitely keep your kitchen a lot cleaner. Just get an electric griddle or get into grilling if you uh, don't mind stepping outside for every meal. And just these last two downsides or cons here um, requires extreme planning. Needless to say, you know, you can't just wing it and just grab food anywhere. You really have to think about when you're going to eat and where are you going to get your food because you can find yourself in a part of town where there's no options here and you're very hungry. So that is something that you have to consider. Um, and of course, the last con, and no way around this one, it's kind of expensive. It's not unreasonably expensive, um, but for me, I would say somewhere in the ballpark between 450 and 650 per month. That's about how much money I have to budget for food. Now, really you end up spending that kind of all at once. The way I do this is I get a butcher box. Um, butcher box is not a sponsor of this podcast, though I, I would pretty shamelessly endorse them if they asked on here. Um, butcher box is like a meat delivery service. It's all grass fed meats, very high quality meat. And I say that having compared it to the meat that I get at Whole Foods or Publix or Walmart or wherever you wanna go get like grocery store meat. Butcher Box is certainly higher quality. Um, so I get one of their large boxes a month. It's $270 a month. Um, and then I, I still have to buy meat. That is nowhere near all of it. But um, that's that's how I get a majority of like the ribeyes that I eat is from Butcher Box. So it's a good starting place. But ultimately, you really should be budgeting in the $500 dollar plus range um, for a carnivore diet. It is certainly not the cheapest diet out there, especially not if you're eating grass fed, which is the only thing that I eat, or if you're, you know, just trying to get higher quality meats, you know, like, yes, you can do the budget version at Walmart, but you know, that's, I don't think there's any argument that that's the highest quality meat that's available. So yeah, something to think about. It does cost a good amount of money. So let me take you through exactly what I eat in a day. And this varies somewhat but not that much if I'm being honest, like how could it, right? I mean, again, excruciatingly simple. So every day does kind of look the same. And again, my lack of interest in the culinary world is what, what gives me comfort within this monotony. It's certainly a lot easier for me to eat this way when, uh, when I don't value like a culinary experience very much to begin with. So for me, every single day, I will have a bare minimum of a dozen eggs. Um, and these are farm fresh organic eggs from my own chickens. I do have to buy eggs on occasion, um, but I actually got a bunch of baby chicks that are uh, in my gym right now. So uh, by this summer, we will not be buying any eggs at all. We'll be getting two dozen a day coming in and that's about the most that I eat. Somewhere between one dozen and two dozen eggs in a day. One sit down meal for me, if it's just eggs, is gonna be a minimum of six eggs, but oftentimes it could be eight or 10. Um, 
I look at eggs as like the rice of my diet. It can be paired with anything. I can put anything on top of it. So eggs is very often like a base food for me. Um, but on average, I would say I eat a dozen eggs a day. Um, that normally will come with about a quarter stick of butter in total. So I would say, yeah, every six eggs, I use like an eighth a stick of butter. Um, so it wouldn't be uncommon for me if I had two dozen eggs in a day to have like half a stick of butter put throughout there. And butter could be interchanged with ghee, which is like rendered um, animal fat. Well, really, it's it's like butter without the lactose is what ghee is. Uh, or beef tallow, which is like rendered beef fat. Um, all kind of the same thing. They'll all get mixed into the eggs. Um, every day I will have at least one 16-ounce ribeye. That's normally from Butcher Box, so it's grass-fed. It has a huge strip of fat on the back of it, and yes, I eat that. Just mushy, straight-up animal fat. And I will, I've progressively cooked my steaks rarer and rarer as time has gone on. So for now, I'm just like flash cooking either side of the steak, and I, I eat my steaks like bloody rare, about as rare as I can stomach them. Um, I found that they digest much, much better that way. Um, something about like overcooked meat, you can feel it hit your stomach in a very different way. Rare meat digests very, very well for me. So uh, at least one, but sometimes two, 16 ounce rare ribeyes every day, and those are always grass fed. Um, in addition to that, I might have something like a pound of ground beef. Um, and that would be like a snack food for me, like cooking up a pound of ground beef. I'm not just gonna sit down and eat a pound of meat, though I, I definitely could. It would be more so like, I'll mix in two or three eggs, um, a quarter stick of butter, uh, you know, or a scoop of beef tallow or something, and just sort of heat all of that up into a big fatty bowl of something, like a half pound of ground beef, three or four eggs, and a quarter stick of butter. That would be a meal for me. And then I'll maybe have that two or three more times, the same meal throughout the day. Um, so ground beef is another huge staple. Now, you can eat chicken and fish on this diet, you can but you won't want to because you find them deeply like unsatiating or insatiating, unsatiating, I think that's the word. You know, they, they, don't, they don't fill you up at all because they're too lean. Because really this is a fat-based diet. It is not a protein-based diet and you don't really have to worry about protein. Trust me, you'll get enough protein eating carnivore. It's more so that you need a certain amount of fat to feel full and to feel energized from your food, which is why we all have to eat anyway, right? It's the fuel that, that we use to, to move our bodies through the world. And fish and chicken, while they might help you, you know, recover, um, you know, it's what protein does, right? Rebuilds muscle. They might help you do that, but fuck, man, they don't make you feel energized at all. There's, there's no connection to me from like energy from eating chicken or fish. It, it feels a lot like empty calories to me. When I eat them, that's how it feels. It's not just merely an opinion. Um, it doesn't make me feel like I've eaten anything at all. I find myself myself still hungry in some way and I have to eat something, uh, something fatty. So all lean meats are kind of off at the table. Um, as far as other things that I might eat here and there, uh, bacon is a big one. If you ever need like a quick snack, I'll cook like a whole pack of bacon and I can just sit down and eat that. So that would be like eight, 10 or 12 pieces of bacon. I could eat that no problem. Though I have found that rendered pork fat is a little bit problematic for me. Um, like if I cook, if I eat the bacon grease that is cooked off of the bacon, that doesn't sit with my stomach very well. And there are also very specific types of animal fats that don't sit with me very well. One of them being brisket. I don't know why, but if I eat anywhere more than a half pound of brisket, I get like a nausea that comes with that. And that's weirdly kind of common. It's just the type of fat that is in that particular cut of meat. 
And it sucks because I love brisket. I've definitely eaten like two pounds of brisket sitting down before. And uh, yeah, just like a nausea that comes with that one. But it's very specific kinds of meat. It's not all meats. If I eat two pounds of ribeyes, I feel light as a feather. Totally fine. You know, I, I wish I could elaborate more on what I eat in a day, but it's it's that painfully simple. That's fucking it. I mean, it's ground beef, it's eggs, it's bacon, it's ribeyes. And that's it, man. <laughs> that's really it. You know, I know this has been a weird podcast because this feels like a just a giant brain dump for me. I tried to organize my thoughts in a way that would be helpful, and hopefully the podcast um, notes here in the description, you know, hopefully that helps you navigate through some of this stuff, but this does feel kind of like an aimless brain dump in a weird way. But I wanted to get all of this information out here because... It, it's deeply troubling to me that my experience on this diet in no way matches what I've been taught my entire life about nutrition. It doesn't add up. There's no correlation between my experience on this diet and the fucking food pyramid. I mean, we are miles apart here. And everything, it, it certainly feels like everything that I've been taught about nutrition growing up, even what I would consider to be like fundamental baseline nutrition facts, you know, that fruits and vegetables are good for you and that, you know, you don't want to have too many refined carbohydrates, but they are a great source of energy and that healthy grains are good for heart health and that you shouldn't have high cholesterol. You know, you name the like baseline nutritional fundamental ideal that somebody has shared with you and this diet just, just smashes them on the fucking ground. And I don't know what to do about that. I don't feel in any way that that this diet has made me um, become married to this idea that fruits and vegetables are bad for you. And I should clarify, I probably should have clarified in the first opening minute of this podcast that I'm not a believer in any version of optimal nutrition. I really don't think there is one diet that everyone should be on. I think the optimal diet is the one that you've customized over many years. That's the optimal diet, right? So I don't feel that I have any authority to tell you that this is the right diet for you. I can only share my experience and say this is this is um, what I've gathered from a year of eating this, this very restrictive diet. But truly, it has been mind-blowing to go through this experience. It has made me more passionate about this diet than I than I ever anticipated I would be. You know, I'm I'm thrilled when I can speak to somebody who asks about it and they're genuinely interested in what this diet might be able to do for them because there's big communities of people that find themselves getting pulled in this direction of the zero carb diet, ZC diet is another name for it. Um, People who have uh, autoimmune disorders tend to be very drawn to this diet because it solves a lot of their symptoms. People with severe gastrointestinal problems um, tend to be drawn to this diet. People who are on keto for a couple years and experience some of the positive benefits there. Sometimes they will, air quotes, like graduate onto a carnivore diet. And it's always exciting for me to run into those people because it feels like this small little cult of people who figured out something truly life-changing. I would put it in that category. It has been truly life-changing. And in so many ways, I don't know what to do with this information other than, you know, to sit here for a fucking hour and tell you guys about it. So... Hopefully this has been interesting. Hopefully it has been insightful. Um, if you have any podcasts or information or books that you'd like to share, please let me know. I would love to. Um, I would love to hear about them. And um, I selfishly kind of hope that like some vegan or vegetarian has listened to this. And I'm friends with many vegans and vegetarians, and they they sort of stand by like in fascination of this. 
because they know that I'm not lying. I'm not making this up. I'm not, um, this is not like an ideology for me. I don't care. I don't care if anybody eats <laughs> eats this way at all. It doesn't bother me. It's just, um, it's this podcast is merely just me sort of pitching out a lot of these these wild observations and making attempts to understand, you know, what might have happened here. I don't know. People a hell of a lot smarter than you and I are working on that, and I'm excited to see uh, to see what they come up with. And I'm also excited to get some blood work done and share that blood work with you uh, in a follow up podcast. That would be really interesting to see, um, yeah, to see where things actually are. Though, admittedly, my hesitancy in doing that is that I'm going to have to work with a doctor. Well, I don't have to work with a doctor, but if a doctor were to ever see my blood work. And they were to come at me with this idea that like uh, you're gonna kill yourself, all your all your arteries are closed, you're gonna have a heart attack and die by age 40. Okay, well, if if they've not done any of the same research that I've done, if they've listened to none of the podcasts, if they've read none of the books, if they've you know merely taken what they learned in med school 20 years ago and they're just gonna apply that to me, I'm not interested in even having that conversation. So. I've got to find a doctor that is open-minded enough um, to have a conversation about this somewhat extreme diet and some of the pros and cons that come with it. So anyway, yeah, I think that's all I got for you on uh, eating fucking meat for a year. If you have any questions about this podcast, feel free to uh, call or text the hotline. That number is in the description of this podcast. And of course, the best thing that you can do um, for you know for me to support this podcast is either leave a comment on YouTube. That's one of the things that is most helpful in boosting the algorithms. Uh, leave a comment with some feedback or any thoughts or ideas that you might have about this. Um, and also share this podcast. And a reminder, you don't have to share this publicly on social media. One of my favorite ways to share podcasts with people is to text it directly to a person who might need to hear that information and say, hey man, this specific episode of this podcast reminded me of you. I think it's a powerful way to share information and if for any reason you think uh, this podcast might resonate with somebody or you've had a, a buddy who's like carnivore curious, <laughs> send it over to a man. Hopefully they can gain some insights from this and I really appreciate your time and attention today. Adam here, I will catch you in the next episode. Thanks guys, bye.